Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. We're doing a throwback today to two years ago when we talked to Luke Mail about traveling his hundreds and hundreds of adventures all off trail in Alaska, over 10,000 miles, as you probably saw in the title of this episode. Uh, it's kind of mind-boggling to even try to wrap your head around 10,000 miles of, of foot travel off trail in Alaska. You talk about somebody that's seen some of the most remote and untouched places in the world uh, and beautiful on top of all that uh, is Luke here. So if you want to learn more about him, obviously listen to the show. You can follow him. He has an awesome social media. You know, I'm not a huge advocate for telling people like follow people on social, but Luke's stuff is really awesome. He's got a lot of ice skating uh, stuff up right now, which uh, he, he mentioned being kind of really excited about that and some just really cool stuff he has going on. So follow his story. Uh, you can learn about him at his website. That's all linked in the show notes. And if you are wanting to go on an adventure with me, we are potentially putting together a trip to Yosemite next year. Link in the show notes, again, for a survey. Fill out the survey, and we're going to see who might be interested in going to Yosemite, backpacking with me uh, in some of the places that have changed my life. Uh, and, you know, if you're interested to go to Alaska... Let me know that too. You know, we, we're not, I'm not dead set on Yosemite. I want to go to Yosemite, but if enough people were like, you know what, let's go to Alaska, let's do that. It's about dang time we got together and did something with the thousands of listeners here around the world. Now, now of course, thousands of people ain't going to be on the trail. Uh, we might, we might cap it at a dozen or so, but let me know. Fill out the survey. Maybe we can go have an experience like, like Luke here. All right, let's dive in. Alaska is always an amazing topic. That's like, you know, <laughs> that's like the promised land to so many of us in the adventure world. And I don't know if anyone has seen more of it than Luke Mel here. Um, I'm excited to get into these stories, Luke. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm psyched to be here. I've, I've noticed on some of the other podcasts that you have a love for Alaska. And, and so I appreciate that. Alaska's pretty amazing. Uh, and man, I, I got to say, there are a bunch of people that have seen way more of Alaska than I have. So disclaimer right away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I usually ask where you're coming from, but obviously you're there right now. Um, where, where specifically in Alaska do you call home? I live in Anchorage. I grew up in a village called McGrath. It's on the Kuskokwim River. And I didn't have any say in growing up there. You know, that's where my folks moved, my mom and my stepdad. Um, so I didn't know any better. That was just normal. I mean, have you seen a lot of change over, over the years? Obviously, you know, travel is easier than it used to be. The Alaskan highway is more or less paved. There's, other, you know, there's ways of getting to Alaska a little bit easier. Ha have you seen a lot of change over the years or has it kind of remained the same? No, I've definitely seen changes. Um, you know, the villages are all shrinking and I, I see that when I travel through and then Anchorage is growing into a real big city with big city problems. You know, um, the city's struggling to figure out how to manage the homeless population. And Alaska is a hard place to be homeless. Oh my um, gosh, I can't even imagine. Yeah. No, you can't imagine. There's, you know, tent shelters along the green belts and just thinking about how hard it would be for these guys to go through the winter. So tons of changes here. Yeah. And, and it's funny, I'll, I'll call you out a little bit like, when you bring up the roads changing, well, in the villages like where I grew up in McGrath, there's there's no road to the village. You have to fly in. So, so just to give you a sense for how different that experience is and what probably most of your listeners, what most of their childhoods were like, it's it's just a different game growing up in the middle of the woods like that. Well, tell us that is uh, that is remarkable. Now I grew up in the rural South, but you know there is there's still a town and there's still plenty of roads and there's still <laughs> you know big cities pretty close by. No matter how far away you get, what in the world is it like to go, grow up somewhere like that? And also, what kind of things were you doing? Is it is it that stereotypical Alaskan survival kind of that we see on TV, or was it uh, you know more or less tame than that? 
Well, certainly less tame than than survival. I think that the term we'd use here would be subsistence. Um, and even though I was you know, part of a white family there in the village, we were living off of moose meat. That's every meal was like moose and a frozen vegetable and either potatoes or rice. I swear my entire childhood uh, was that diet. And um, yeah, so a small town, uh, population 500, I think now it's down to 300. Um, one road, like a gravel road. And when I was there as a kid in the 80s, people were driving three-wheelers. That was before three-wheelers were deemed unsafe. And then people got four-wheelers. And, and now there have been enough cars. You know, once a car gets to McGrath, and, and that means flown in or barged in, even if it breaks down and needs a bunch of repair, like it, it's, somebody does that work. And so most people, I think at this point, are driving cars and trucks. And they're all beaters. They're like, Gosh, our family vehicles there, you know, one of them starts with a screwdriver and one of them you basically have to jump like it's so, but super resourceful, right? I really like that aspect of, of the village life is that you're, you, you need to be able to problem solve. And, and I think a bunch of that problem solving, or at least seeing that as, as, as kind of the role model from, especially my stepdad put me in a good position to then start playing more outside. And then it's like, well, of course stuff breaks. Of course things go wrong. And of course there's a blizzard that blows through like that. You're aware of all that. I think growing up in an isolated village like McGrath. How does a family end up there? Cause I'm looking at it on the map and, and you're in researching. It's just, it's, it is so out there. How, how do you end up in that area in the first place? We ended up there because my stepdad took a job with uh, a school district initially. Um, I did a Rod Area School District, like an administrative role. And then he met my mom in Montana. That's where I was born. And, and we moved up, moved up when I was four. Um, and then he worked with the, the, the university system has a cooperative extension service. It's kind of like an academic resource for the for these communities. So that's why we were there. And, and actually, I wish we had time to tell a little bit about my stepdad's story. He first came up to Alaska with a rodeo straight out of high school. <laughs> oh my gosh, man. <laughs> so he like fell in love, you know, as a 19 year old bareback, whatever Bronco guy and fell in love with Alaska. And then, and then went back to Montana to do his education work and, and, and moved up to Alaska quite a bit later. But a lot of people come up for a seasonal job, um, and then just fall in love with it and stay. I like those stories. So, you know, one of the first things you notice that when you look at uh, McGrath from above is its proximity to the Kuskokwim River, if that's how you pronounce it. How, how much is that river involved in your life or how big a part of everything is that waterway? Yeah, that's right. Everything is the, the Kuskokwim River. Uh, and, and traditionally that means that the, the indigenous communities, the native communities had fish camps up and down the rivers. And I think McGrath as a town site was there because that's, that's as far up they could get a barge. Um, and there is some mining up some of the tributary rivers that flow in near McGrath. And so they were, all of the transport was on the rivers because there are no roads, right? And, and the village was there early and I guess in aviation days, but, but yeah, primarily in the summer, people are on river boats and then the winter people are on snow machines taking the river and then also taking overland uh, crossings because the terrain is really flat out there. And that's so striking is how flat it is. You're not, you know, I mean, you are a long ways, but by Alaskan standards, you're not that far from, you know, the mountain range that has Denali. You, you feel like it would be maybe, you know, more mountains in the area, but you know what a lot of people don't realize there's a lot of flat area throughout uh, Alaska. Jeez, man, I don't mean to harp on this so much. It's just so dang interesting. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure you're used to it. <laughs> no, I mean, I love talking about it because it's, it's an amazing, I mean, Alaska just has these, these, these tracts of continuous wildlands, right? Like that's yeah. what makes it so unique. That's that whether you've identified that as, as part of your appreciation for Alaska or not, like that's how I think of it. And, and McGrath being on a river in the middle of a huge flat valley, like I, I didn't know mountains existed from, from McGrath. And, and honestly, 
I didn't know rocks existed. As a little kid, I remember the discovery that there was rock under soil because, you know, what we see on the riverbanks and everything, that's just, it's just silt, gravel and, and sand. So it, it took leaving McGrath to kind of understand and get into mountain sports. And, and my, with my dad being in Montana the whole time, I was going down to Montana. So I saw the Rockies. I did um, camping and campgrounds with my dad. That was totally different than, than the sort of outdoor recreation experience in McGrath. So I got to see both, both ends of it. It's unreal. And you mentioned leaving McGrath and leave, leave McGrath. You did. You in fact have accumulated now over 10,000 miles of travel over Alaska by, uh, by your own power, ski, foot, bike, pack raft all over Alaska, even ice skates. You mentioned that. Um, when did you start? getting out there and exploring what was the uh the what what initiated that i guess and what age well it it wasn't it wasn't the childhood in mcgrath like during those years going outside <clears throat> usually meant going up river to a, our cabin um but that's like that was a pretty cold experience you know you're you're on a snow machine for an hour i would they would literally like use a bungee strap to strap me onto my mom like around the back so I wouldn't fall off the snow machine when we're going on these bumpy trails. And then you get to a cabin that's like 20 below and it takes hours to get it up to temperature. You're just blazing through wood and do like my, my parents keep their cabin at like 85 degrees. It's pretty funny just because you're, you're using wood as a heat source. And, um, so, so that wasn't, I think for Francis, for my stepdad, that was fun, but, but culturally you know, when people are going outside, they're they're doing it to bring something home, and maybe that's firewood, or maybe that's pelts if they're trapping fish. You know, hunting. So it wasn't there wasn't any culture of of recreation just for the fun of it, with the exception of one guy. There's a German guy that that would go biking and go skiing just for fun, and that was that was weird, right? He was like Peter was the German guy that goes biking for fun, so. I didn't see mountain sport for for fun until I, I moved into Anchorage for high school and I met friends that were snowboarding and rock climbing and started going out with them. And then also when I was doing these these camping trips with my dad in Montana, it's like, okay, so you don't this doesn't have to be work and it doesn't have to be freezing cold. And I loved it. I loved the the climbing I did in high school and I studied geology in, in college and grad school as another way to to get outside to, to keep me in the mountains. But I didn't get, I didn't dive deep into the, the miles that you're talking about, the 10,000 miles, until I came back to Alaska after finishing some, some graduate programs. So that was around 2008. Was there, as you went out into the world, got, got your um, education, was there this realization of like, holy cow, the place I left was an amazing playground? I know for me, you know, you don't think much about home until you're gone and see the world in a new way. And then every time I feel like I go back home now, it's like, oh, I never noticed this before. Let me go explore that. And it's all these things I'm now interested in that I just didn't know about then. What, did you experience that as well? And, you know, I didn't. I, I always knew that what Alaska had was really special and um, and I always missed it. I came home, you know, every summer break as many winter breaks as I could. I, of course, it didn't help, you know, that my high school friends, classmates were, would send updates, you know, about whatever they're skiing or all the cool stuff they're doing outside while I'm living in Minnesota for college and and California and Massachusetts, these states that had less, less opportunities to get into the mountains. And I always knew I was going to come home. That was a big priority. Like if I started dating a, a girl, it was kind of like, could she live in Alaska? Like that was one of my, <laughs> yeah, like, and that was, that was bad in a way that really, you know, limited my, <laughs> my social, my, my romantic opportunities, but that's how <laughs> big of a role Alaska played for me from the get go. That's pretty cool to hear. And yeah, that's definitely going to limit your options. There's, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of people out there that could not put up with the extremes there. But you're built for it. You know, you, you, that, that's really cool to know that you've always known that it was something special. So what did it look like for you to start really diving into uh, your home state? 
you know, I started small. I think like most people, um, when I was in high school, my high school actually had a backpacking course that we could take for PE credit. And so those were my first, you know, overnight couple night trips and they were on the trail system. There's a, an area called the Kenai Peninsula south of Anchorage that just has hundreds of miles of awesome trails uh, and cabins. They're, it's just a, it's a real, real gem for, for the steep part of that learning curve where you go out and, and realize you got the wrong shoes or are carrying too little or too much or whatever. So I had this awesome learning environment um, to kind of cut my teeth. And I, gosh, I've made some really embarrassing uh, mistakes in those early years, but I think everybody has. I, I'll just give you one, for example, on the on one of my first trips, I carried two quarts of liquid milk <laughs> because like, that's what I drink at home, right? I have my Cheerios and milk for breakfast. So of course that's what I'm going to do if I'm Saturday morning on a, on a camping trip or something. And, you know, and then of course, flash forward 20 years when I'm doing some of these pretty ambitious trips on my own. And it's like, I'm not even bringing, you know, some people cut their tooth brush in half it was like no no toothbrush like <laughs> I can't afford that extra weight so just that whole progression that started for me in high school and making a lot of mistakes and learning from them and then when I moved back to Alaska after grad school um, and, and my grad program since it was geology and I just happened to study like one of the densest rocks that you can find on the surface of the earth it's it's a rock that comes from from the upper mantle or crust, it's actually denser than the surface of the earth. So it's, it's a rare one to find, which also means it's, it's a heavy one to find. So I was in great hiking shape and, and got home and just, just dove deep, um, learned how to ski, um, took every opportunity to get outside. I wouldn't even check the weather. This has been a funny change for me as I get older is that now I check the forecast and I'm like, Oh, there's some clouds. Maybe I'll wait in that phase of my evolution. I, it, I didn't, it didn't, the weather didn't matter. I was going to go out no matter what. So I just logged a lot of days. And then there are these events and um, maybe you can direct your, your readers to some, maybe Roman Dial's podcast here where he, he talks a little bit about the wilderness classics, which are these, uh, they're not, they're not officially a race because there's no prize and there's no sponsorship and, and they, they can't be races to go through some of the, the parklands and, and areas that we, we, uh, travel through, but uh, you're given a starting point and ending point. They're usually 150 or 200 miles apart. And then, and then you just do the course, you make your own course and you're responsible to get yourself out of trouble if needed. Um, and I did my first of those wilderness classics that, that first summer or first winter rather coming back up from grad school and that environment, the wilderness classics, um, allowed me to learn a ton more about what my body was capable of and to manage all the little stuff that goes wrong. Um, and so I, gosh, I've probably done 12 or 14 of those at, at this point. And with each one just came out of that thinking like, oh, I know more about what food I need to eat or, oh, I guess I didn't need a tent after all. Um, so I learned a ton from those events and then started applying those to like bigger objectives. Like um, Denali was the first one. We, we took that same sort of ultralight travel strategy and applied it to a big mountain, Denali, and took, I don't know, 25 days to do that. But that was a, that was a transition for me to, to realize that I could start making up my own, drawing my own routes on the map, I guess would be a good way to say it. And um and then trying to trying to complete those courses. I just feel like I just talked a lot. <laughs> you follow me? It's it's much better when to talk a lot than not talk enough, uh, especially on a podcast. So that's very helpful. Now I I go into as much detail as you want. So it sounds like those courses really started opening that world to you. And I'm sure, you know, I I mean I tell you what, I've been in places that just feel that the adventures feel endless, and I keep you know. I don't want to keep sound like just the geekiest fanboy of Alaska. I can't imagine how much more you felt that feeling of once you have these skills in place, how much there is out there to explore. I'm sure it's just overwhelming in the area you're in. 
even deciding which area to go, which area to explore, which area to push, it's really uh, an unexplored frontier in a lot of ways. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Um, yeah, yes and no. For, sh- for sure, the, what you're describing about the, the unlimited options, I can definitely relate to. The unexplored frontier part, that's, that's a little inaccurate, I think, given the native history here. And, and, it's, and I'm just mentioning it because it's something I'm paying more attention to as I get older. It's easy to imagine these landscapes as being unexplored and, and, you know, I have been calling them wilderness forever, but they, they've all had people traveling through for hundreds and thousands of years. And so I'm personally just kind of trying to rebrand that for myself as, as wild lands, um, to remind myself that unexplored by white guys like me, yes, but, um, but not unexplored. But yeah, more specifically to what you're talking about, the, you know, when I first, when I did my first hundred mile trip and I was just, that was amazing to me that I could travel a hundred miles. And, and I had heard about other people doing that kind of trip, those long trips. And I didn't understand how that was possible. Like, how do you travel a hundred miles off trail? Like, how do you even navigate that? What do you bring that? That was, that seemed so impossible to me that once I did it, I, gosh, I just felt so proud and, and I had learned so much. And it, like you're saying, it made me want more. It's like, wherever I finished that first trip, I wanted to start the next one. And, and honestly, I'm still kind of doing that. I, I have this map of Alaska and all the routes that I've done. And, and I look at it and I look for gaps, parts of the state that I haven't traveled through. And I try to think, how could I see that? Like, for me, so much of this, this game or this hobby is is to collect these the landscape like visually i'm I'm a real visual person you know i love art and 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 landscapes and and so i'm basically trying to to see as much of that as possible and in, in alaska it's limitless like my wife would love to be doing more travel like international travel she wants to do more of that and and when we leave i generally feel like ah this is a window when i could have done a trip at home because i really wanted to to visit the Talkeetnas or I really wanted to see this part of the Brooks range, you know, or whatever. Like I honestly get a little bit stressed out about it because I'm not going to come anywhere close to seeing what I want to see uh, just here within Alaska. That is really interesting because, you know, we, we do have, you know, almost this pressure to see more of the world, but when you start to realize just how much is right there in your own backyard, it can totally fulfill that desire to explore I feel that way where I live and it's not, you know, it's nothing in comparison, nothing in comparison as far as vastness. Um, so when you are doing these, these trips, these off trail trips, what, what is the objective? What is the goal? You know, is it, are they loops? Are they out and backs? Are you trying to summit something or is it literally just see this area and get back as safely as possible? Yeah. My, my objectives are almost always, I guess I'll call it a traverse because it's it's not a loop and it's not an out and back. I really like to start at one point and finish somewhere else. And and part of that again is is that my motivation is to collect as much of the landscape as possible. So so a loop would do that for sure. Um but an out and a back I always feel like it's like dang it, I just saw this. <laughs> right. And, right. Yeah, which is a silly I mean all, a lot of this is silly, right? To put as much time and resources into this, but, but it's meaningful. And, and I'm sure it's meaningful for a lot of your, your uh, community too. But the trips that I'm doing, I'm, I'm identifying a starting point and a finish point. It's kind of inspired by those early wilderness classics. And specifically what I'm doing here, where there is such limited road coverage, which is a good thing uh, for me, is I call it a, a logistics by convenience. It's basically trying to figure out where are the easy places to start and finish? And then I'll sculpt the trip around those um, rather than having a big objective in mind ahead of time. So let me give you an example from outside of Alaska that might be more relevant. I, so I still have a bunch of family down in Montana and 
I went down for my uh, stepbrother's wedding and, and he's in Missoula and then I've got family to visit in Great Falls. And so I thought, well, how can I, how can I connect these points? Uh, and I ended up um, kind of creating, a, I've done this twice now, but one time a bike route. So where I biked that distance and cut through a bunch of forest service roads and cow pastures and, and all this. Um, but that same mentality, what I'm doing in Alaska, like what are the easy places to connect up here? It's, it's, um, it's a, a village, you know, something that you can fly into more affordably than having to charter a plane. For example, you can maybe fly to a village for $250, but to charter that same length of a flight to get dropped in the, in the middle of the mountains might cost $1,500. So there's a, there's an economic incentive to use the, the easy logistical points, so the road system and these villages. So I'll choose one village, choose another village, and then and then do a bunch of homework to try to figure out how I'm going to connect them. I was going to ask, you know, how much do you know about these routes that you're going into and, you know, the terrain? Because I'm sure, I mean, you can be get cliffed out. You could run into, you know, crevasses. You can run into so many things that might be... Uh, impassable being, you know, off trail trips. How much do you know about these areas when you're going into them? And also are most of these, at least to your knowledge, the first time someone's done them? Not, or not maybe this, you know, I know we've talked about the, the native, uh, uh, the natives who have been there for years. And so I, I mean, by a trip report standards, is it the first yeah, time? First, first sport. I think that, and yeah, that's how I'm thinking about it is for the first time, first sport for yep. recreation. Yep. That's the distinction for me. Um, I know a lot about the course before going on it. If you take your both your listeners and your other podcast presenters and line them up on a spectrum between cool and dorky, I'm I'm like I'm real close to that dorky limit. <laughs> and, and I, and it's, you know, I, I loved school. I, I loved the, the 10 years that I studied geology uh, that got me real familiar with maps and, and with various software. And then I worked for 10 years doing GIS work, geography work and data science work. And through that, I was exposed to a lot of resources for that could be used for trip planning. So we weren't using them for trip planning. We were using them to say, uh, map salmon distribution or sea ice or something. But then I thought, oh my gosh, I can use this to, 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 to draw a route, say between these villages or across this mountain range, and then also to anticipate conditions. And so depending on the scope of my trip, I'll spend days or weeks or months in that planning phase. Uh, and collecting as much information as I can. And, and this is this is not a romantic style of adventure for a lot of people. That This style does not appeal to people, and I'm totally comfortable with that. I think, I think the difference is that uh, people that don't like this style think it, it takes away some of the, like, on-the-fly adventure decision-making. My counter-argument to that, or why it works so well for me, is that if I do the homework ahead of time, I go out there and then I can actually just enjoy my time more there. I don't have to stress out about um, how many days it is until our next um, cache of food or you know which valley we're going to go into. So I just get to hike or ski or bike, whatever I'm doing, ice skate, um, and, it, and it allows me to relax a little bit and, and cover more ground because so much of the homework is already done. So, uh, the simple answer to your question is that I know, I think I know a lot before I go in and the complicated answer is I spent a bunch of time doing homework, um, and creating this, this pretty complicated trip plan and Google earth and carrying it on my phone with guy. I'm happy to talk about some of those specifics if that's helpful or of interest. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get into some more detail. But I do want to mention, you know, it's the same thing with podcasting. I know they don't seem at all related, but the more prepared I am for an interview, 
the more fun mm. I have, the more I get to just know, I know the story, I know where we can go back to. Like, you know the trail, so you can take these side trips with confidence, knowing you know where to go back to. And when I'm not mm. prepared for an interview, gosh, I stress out like, oh, am I going to know enough? And for you, there's really no way to prepare enough because it's like you've got a lifetime of these adventures and uh, literally books of knowledge to to, to go through. Um, when you're doing these trips, before we get into like hardcore, how you, how, how you plan these and how, what, what you're using, do you try to hit covering a few different sports like skiing and, and, and biking or pack rafting. I know you've obviously written a book about pack rafting. What are, are you trying to combine as many of these as possible or only doing the sports that, that are necessary to get it done? Before I say, before I address that, I want to say, I, I love what you just said about preparation for the podcast and, and that being relatable to you at this. I've had trouble. You could probably tell I struggled to try to convey that and, um, and what you said is exactly right. That's that's super cool. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, as far as modes of transport, so this again is 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 really governed by that. Where am I going to start and where am I going to finish? And then within that, I want to travel as efficiently as possible. And so I'll I'll break that trip down into segments. And if there's a segment that can be biked, I'll try to bike it. And if there's a segment that can be floated, like I definitely want to float it because it's a lot easier on my body to, to float a river. Um, and it's also a nice change of muscle groups where like my, my favorite trips are where, you know, I hike for a couple of days, my legs are tired and then I paddle for a day or a couple of days. And that gives my legs a chance to recover. I blow out my arms, my back, and I set back to, um, to hiking. And you still cover tons of miles. And you get to cover tons of miles if you're if you're traveling as efficiently as possible. Yeah, so it's so I can give you a concrete example of this. When when we did decide to go up Denali, um, we didn't want to pay to to go from the base camp, the traditional trip. I think it I think there's generally a price tag of I don't know seven thousand dollars or something to to fly into the base camp, fly out of base camp, and do it that way. So we decided to go from the road system and to the road system. And, and then when I broke that down into how we could possibly do that, um, we started by biking on the, on the Denali highway, the road that goes, or the park, park highway that goes toward Denali. And we biked on it um, after it was first plowed, but before it was plowed all the way to the end of the road. So it wasn't open for business. But rounded up a bunch of friends with bikes, said, hey, who wants to go biking this weekend? And by the way, can you carry this trailer with a bunch of our food? <laughs> um, and, and so we biked, I don't know, 60 miles or something, and then left our bikes there literally in the ditch. I uh, picked them up months later um, and switched to skis. And so then we we're on skis for two weeks, a little more than two weeks to go up Denali and go down the other side of Denali. And then friends had buried pack rafts for us at base camp. And so we found a little wand that had our name on it and dug down and, and unearthed this care package with boats and, and then switched out and, and floated down to the town of Talkeetna. So that was a, I guess that's probably the first trip that I truly that did with that multi-sport technique. And I loved it. It was so cool to start on bikes with friends, you know, where they could come in for a couple of days and turn around and then to switch to skis where the skiing was good. And then to switch to boats to, to have a couple of days on the water to finish things out that added a lot to the, to the trip. Um, and, and part of what it added for me is that a friend of mine expressed this in a way that all that, that stuck with me and I'll use my words instead of hers, but, if, if you just fly in, for example, to Denali, you, you miss out on all that, that scenery and that experience of getting to that point. And, and I get it that people are busy and, and it's easier to do that. But for me, I had the time, I had the fitness. Um, it added a lot for me to go under my own power to the base of the mountain, go up and over it, and then go under my own power, or I guess the river's power, um, to finish out in that community of Talkeetna. So I really appreciate the approach um, 
that's part of the trip for me. I, you know, going somewhere under your own power uh, just makes it turns up the vividness. It turns up the beauty. It tur- it turns everything up to eleven versus getting there an easy way. And that's you know, like you said, it's no one's necessarily no one's fault. You know, depending on the time, it's better to see it than not. Um, but if you do have that ability. I'm sure, and especially experiencing it over so you know a number of different mediums allowed you to have an amazingly well-rounded experience. Um, that's so cool. That's a great example. Yeah, it felt it was great, and and it was you know it was lucky we had great conditions as well. Um, but we were just playing. It's just like like everything you know on these learning curves, whether it's learning how to make a podcast or how to plan a trip through the mountains. It's like that was one step further from the comfort zone, you know, longer miles, longer trip, colder temperatures. Um, and then I learned a bunch from that trip and then, a, and then chose an objective for the next trip that, that would build from that. That's, that's basically been my strategy. Wow. Uh, and I, you know, we always talk about, we have, I used to ask like, how does, uh, how do you plan for your next adventure to get the idea? But gosh, it's, it's always the same answer. Like you, if, the more you learn about a place, <laughs> you, you're thinking about it while you're out on the trip. And so you kind of have an idea of what you want to do next already. And so after about 500 of those same answers, I was like, you know what? <laughs> we're good. We're, I'm good. Um, but I do want to ask this cause this is unique to you. Um, choosing between your sports, cause you've got pack rafting, you've got cycling, you've got ice skating, literally, something we never talk about. And you've taken some long ass trips, uh, ice skating. How do you choose between that? And, and, and why, why some of that, those unique sports, especially ice skating, that's just so, uh, so different. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I honestly haven't put that much thought into, into the modes of travel. And, and part of that is because, um, the trip is, is largely governed by what I want to see. And then I match the gear to that. But, but I have had changes. Like I remember on a couple of my last, so there was a run of maybe six or seven years where I was doing a, like a month long ski traverse, um, glacier travel, same group of friends, not always the same group on each trip, but kind of the same community of friends. And these are awesome trips, really, really fun, meaningful trips for me. And gosh, on some of those, the last trips, I I would be in the middle of a glacier, you know, we're roped up, we're slogging, and and I look around and be like, have I already seen this? I had kind of like a deja vu where the landscapes were starting to to blend together, and and I had done enough glacier miles that that landscape was was suddenly a little less rewarding, which sounds kind of criminal to say, but 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 I had that realization, and since then I'm doing less glacier travel and more um looking for for more variety in the landscape glaciers are awesome and the mountains are awesome in the winter but you're really talking about a black and white landscape and so these last few years i've been i've been really excited about catching fall colors or um, trying to get out at the very beginning of spring when the when the brush isn't too when the leaves haven't um when the brush hasn't leafed out um yet so you can still like get through the woods without having to to work too hard so so those are kind of giving me these different visual um rewards and you mentioned ice skating and that's a great example of that because it turns out ice skating is done in really flat country right <laughs> ideally so, yes <laughs> yeah ideally uh so that's a huge difference for me to go from a denali trip 10 years ago, um, to what I'm really excited about now, which is I would love to go ice skate some swampy, marshy, boggy land. Uh, and it's a, it's a totally different experience to see that. And I, and I wouldn't visit the marshes. Otherwise, I'm not going to go out there in the summer, but if I can go out there in the winter on skates, I didn't grow up skating and I'm not a strong skater now, but I can go 10 miles an hour on skates and it is so much fun. And I get to see all sorts of crazy stuff that I wouldn't see. Otherwise, you know, you can, I've skated over muskrat, like 
tracked them on the surface of the ice and seen a beaver on the, under the ice under me. Um, and all these crazy frost crystals, because where there's a little chunk of open water, that water vapor, you know, escapes and, and, and grows these beautiful fern-like crystals. Um, so, yeah, if you were to force me to only choose one, one sport right now, it'd be ice skating. Like, that's what I'm so excited wow. about. That's it's awesome. so funny. It's totally weird. But, but we've had a couple trips now where we get to skate a hundred miles in a couple of days. Like that's insane. That is so cool. So Hey, you got me all excited just thinking about it. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You know that I'll be honest. I'm trying to rack my brain all our episodes. We've never we talked a lot about like exp not expedition but journeys. You know journeys like multi day bike packing. We've had skateboarding on. You know people that are skate touring. You know skateboarding. We've had rollerblading definitely. Um, but ice skating, ice skate touring or whatever you're gonna you know whatever you call it. <laughs> it is it is pretty new. So I, so I just imagine it's, it's a lot of the same uh, gear, obviously with camping and staying warm in the winter, but, uh, these Nordic skates that are just, you know, longer have the abil- ability to, um, maybe handle some of the variables or inconsistencies of, of natural ice a little easier than something that's groomed or not groomed, but you know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm from Florida. I don't know a ton about ice, so um, <laughs> it doesn't show. You're doing great. You're doing great. Well, I, you know, I, I I was out west for years, and and uh, we do actually have a pretty legendary ice skating uh, area near our house, which is funny, random, but and our hockey teams do pretty well. Funny enough, yeah, but do. um, what kind of unique elements does that add to your touring mindset that you already have? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me fill in the gaps there a little bit because you're exactly right. They're these Nordic blades and Nordic because they're coming from Scandinavia and I think have been used there for hundreds of years. Um, they're a long blade and it's, it's like a steel blade and it's got an aluminum platform, a flat aluminum platform that you put any ski binding on and they're meant for like a skate ski, cross country ski binding and boot. Um, but we're actually putting our downhill bindings, at least the toe piece, like a tech toe piece for backcountry touring um, and wearing a, a backcountry ski boot. So you've got a big beefy boot rather than, at least for me, my experience in hockey skates is that they're pretty darn uncomfortable and they're pretty cold. They're, you know, they're really for performance. So instead of that, you get a warmer, more comfortable boot and you get this long blade that smooths out the ice. Um, and they're not real nimble, so you know you can't make real sharp turns, but you can cover ground. They're faster. They're more similar to the speed skating, like the Olympic speed skating, um, than they are to hockey skates. And and the, you know as far as thinking about these trips, um, the big concern, of course, is breaking through the ice, and. And I'm not too worried about that on a lake. Um, I, I don't want it to happen, but if it does, we're carrying an ice screw, we're carrying a rope um, to help somebody get out of the ice. Uh, what does scare me is skating over r- rivers, over moving water. And then, yeah, that absolutely terrifies me. Also because the where there's a current under the ice, the ice's thickness is not necessarily consistent. Um, even on a lake, it's not consistent, but at least you can kind of predict, you know, if there's water coming in or water going out, that's where there's going to be thinner ice. So that's the, the in terms of safety, that's the first thing we're paying attention to is, is the condition of the ice. There's a, there's a special ski pole, just like a normal ski pole, but it's got a real heavy steel tip. And you can use that tip and, and kind of a calibrate, like how hard you snap it at the ice. And, and I've got to the point with that with that pole where I can, I can tell whether the ice will support me just based on a couple of smacks coming from this, this steel tipped, um, uh, ski pole. So that's a really nice, uh, tool to help me uh, determine whether that, whether it's appropriate to be on the ice or not. And then another big factor is wind because the skates are super fast, but when we're trying to do these longer trips, 
if you have a headwind here, you really feel it and it's hard and it's cold, right? By, de by default, we're talking about winter travel. Um, so winter travel with a headwind with the wind chill can be really cold. Oh, I've got, I can tell you a couple specific um, stories that'll pr probably help the listeners get a picture for what I'm talking about. Do you have any questions on, yeah, no questions on what I just described? Yeah, I mean, go ahead and tell your story. I'm just curious, like, you know, if, if if you ever found yourself in a situation where the ice wasn't strong enough or you had to, or, you know, no ice at all. I mean, I don't know if you ever come across that, but what happens when your medium changes on you drastically? Yeah, perfect. Okay, so let me, let me tell you about a trip we did out of um, Bethel, which is in southwest Alaska, and had a friend fly over there for work, you know, maybe the week before and he said hey these these ponds are are looking frozen and then there's bare tundra between them and this part of alaska it's called the the yk delta yukon cuscoquim delta so it's a huge by huge i mean like 100 mile delta um where these big rivers braid out like infinite braids and there are all these abandoned channels and abandoned ponds you know from the the thousands of years of these of these meandering rivers changing um, changing their channels. So, for me as an ice skater, what that means is that there's a lot of potential ice um, to connect from pond to pond or on some of these these frozen channels. And so we start in Bethel and we um, we walk down to the ice. The town's right on the river, and the first thing we see is a semi truck drive by. But, you know, Bethel, like McGrath, has no roads to it, so I don't. So I have, yeah, did this thing manifest out of nowhere? How did it get there? Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it manifests out of nowhere, and we kind of shake your head and say, "Am I seeing something?" But sure enough, it's a it's a big ass semi truck just hauling down the river, and so if you see that, you can be pretty confident about the ice's thickness and the appropriateness of being out there on ice skates. That's hilarious. <laughs> so it was hilarious. So so we start and we start skating down the river. We got a tailwind and and that's not by mistake. Um, part of my homework is is looking both at what the wind, you know, if there's a a, a general wind direction, um, and then also specifically like what's happening right now, what's the forecast for the week. So we've got a tailwind. We're getting pushed down the river on great ice. After the semi, we see a guy. Um, ice fishing. He's got a net underneath the ice, so two holes that are maybe 30 feet apart. Um, and he's pulling the net through there and, and pulling fish out of the surface. So we stop and chat with him for a little bit. Super cool. And then we just go and go and go. And um, with that tailwind, we realized that when we would stop to try to take a break, it was just me and my wife, Sarah. We'd stop and take a wake, put our backs to the wind, you know, put a puffy jacket on. And it still was pretty uncomfortable. Um, and eventually we realized that it was more comfortable to just stand side by side and get blown down the river while we're passing our fruit snacks and, you know, hot chocolate back and forth. Like that became our break. So such a, like such a different experience. And, and pretty soon we get off the river and we're in that, that Delta section that's got all these ponds and everything and just by luck there this was i think maybe a january trip or february trip and there there had been a a warm spell and rain and that rain had melted off all the ice on the tundra but it had where there already was a snow machine track it just turned the snow on the snow machine track into ice and then it didn't melt so basically, if you can picture this in your head, you've got a snow machine track of ice with 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 grass on both sides of it. And so we were able to stay on that track and and double pull. So using our ski poles to just propel ourselves forward for like 70 miles. <laughs> Holy crap, 70? We started that day, you know, we probably got on the ice around noon. And, and these days are short for the winter. So we were probably off the ice by around five and we had gone 70 miles. Oh my, so, what would you have done if that hadn't have, you know, coincidentally 
formed that way. We would have um, walked from pond to pond, so we would have portaged. Oh, wow. And that's another of the advantages of these skates is that you just step in and out of them because you're wearing a ski boot. So you walk the ski boot to the pond and then skate the pond and then take off the skate, walk the next one. So so that was the plan. We uh, we didn't expect to be able to skate a snow machine track. Some sometimes you win. You know, you you mentioned you're on the uh you're you're over on the dorky side of the scale, but that sounds pretty cool to me, honestly. <laughs> this this trip wouldn't have been possible without all that homework. So that's a that's part of this approach for me and why I'm I'm so willing to to put the time into the the planning is that you we just there's no way we could have done this trip um, without having done you know research the satellite imagery and the weather forecasts and and just to go back to what you said you know about conditions changing and do you run out of ice on that trip we were working our way south and we it got warmer and warmer as we were going south so you know 70 miles that first day maybe 40 the next and then we're out of ice and we've got open rivers to cross and or, or, or streams rather and I, I'll have a um, a memory it's kind of seared in my brain that I'll always have where this was pretty early in the in the dating of, of my now wife and we have to cross this open water it's only 15 feet wide but the mud banks are another 15 feet on each side and they're like knee deep super soft you know, not quicksand, but, um, but real soft mud. And we were carrying skis on this trip cause we thought we might run into snow. So I switched into my skis to, to, to walk over this mud to, to kind of, to use them as like, um, as snowshoes basically to, to spread out my weight, distribute my weight. And I get to the other side, it's a battle walking through this mud. And I look back and Sarah is completely stuck in the mud and, and later she told me she was panicking a little bit because she thought, like, what if he leaves me here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're in the middle of nowhere, you know, and we're we're just dating. And it's like, how could that even be a possibility in your brain that I have? It's like, no, I got to I got to keep going, man. Like, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, I go back and, and, and try to help her through this mud. And and because things had thought out, we we decided to go inland uh, into the mountains where we could we could get some snow and and that way we could we could go up high enough that we could cross some of these rivers um, when they were narrower and 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 that again was like when I had done the planning I knew that was a possibility and so I had that sort of I had researched that option and I had routes drawn and we were navigating on our phones. Um, and and so that's that's part of it too is anticipating what can go wrong, and having these these backup plans in place um, so that we can, if we don't finish the trip, that we can at least get out safely. That's a that's a big part of it. It really helps with the safety aspect. So so having explored so much of Alaska and having so much that you I'm sure still want to do, what has been maybe one of the unique aspects of uh, what you've seen in Alaska that, you know, a lot of folks either don't know exist or don't know is out there. It doesn't fit the, uh, the stereotypical stuff we think about with Alaska. This probably isn't quite the right answer, but I, I'm going to default back to that concept of these continuous tracts of wilderness. Um, just because that is, that is so unique. And, and I think people probably have that sense for Alaska if they're looking at it on the map or, Google Earth or one of these reality TV shows, but but it's even bigger than that. Like when you're when you're walking through it or skiing through it, it's just amazing to be able to to visit somewhere that still has 400 miles of of travel that you can do without without seeing a road, without seeing a structure. That's yeah, that's just that's so special. Uh, is there a, a route or a, a trip you want to do that that's really a kind of at the top of your list that you're looking forward to, like a bucket list maybe? Could you, could you explain that a little bit? Um, yeah, so what I'm... Um, I mentioned I have these these lines on the map that I'm trying to c- connect, and 
and this is kind of a, a dorky thing too. So there's a there's a TV show called Molly of Denali, uh, animated kids movie. Yeah, we watch Maybe. it all the time with my kids. Okay, <laughs> all right. I think says something about from Kaktovic down to Juno, always wanting to know more. Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, so so I have some. So I'm I'm a I'm a at, at some point I will have traveled from Kaktovic down to Juno. I've got some gaps in the lines that connect to those communities. And so that, so that's my big goal. That's what I'm trying to do in the next couple of years, if I can. And they're pretty big gaps and it might not actually happen, but I, I just were huge fans of that show. And uh, I thought, Oh, that's perfect. I've already got those things started. You know, I've traveled maybe from Kaktovic about 800 miles to the West and from Juneau all the way up through Anchorage and, maybe another couple hundred miles west of Anchorage. And so, uh, and I have little pieces that are, that are in between those two endpoints. So that's my big objective. <laughs> no freaking way. You're getting cooler and cooler the longer you talk, honestly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to, I was going to ask you about that. Like, obviously I like, we watch it pretty a couple times a week when we turn on PBS kids and it, definitely gets me eager to visit Alaska again, just because it seems so um, true to Alaska. And I was going to ask you, being there, does that show have a presence at all or a reputation? And it sounds like it does. Everybody loves it. I, I mean, and really, they've just done such a good job with like a native production team and writers and, and um, the stories they tell. And, it, and it's all the parts of it that I can relate to from growing up in McGrath are all really accurate it's so cool it really is a treat no kidding man that is too cool to hear honestly from someone who has lived that life truly um but shoot man well i hate to have to run but you know you obviously you have a book on pack rafting like the handbook of pack rafting do you, do you see yourself writing it for any other of these sports that you're doing or do you feel just a particular expertise in that area Pack rafting made sense because I have this kind of 15 year arc where I got in over my head and then, and then lost a friend. I had a friend drowned in a pack rafting incident. And then that forced me in the last seven years to just reevaluate how I'm doing it. My whole relationship with the outdoors, you know, that was, that was a, a real hard hit to me. Um, and so, and I teach swift water now. I, I really, poured myself into it. So the backcrafting handbook, um, it's awesome. I definitely recommend it. It's, it's appropriate for beginners and, and experts too. Um, I do, I love the writing process and I would like to write more. And, uh, I anticipate writing something about these, these skating trips. Um, what I'm working on right now, which might also be interesting of interest to your listeners is I'm building an online course for this trip planning process for the Google Earth and the different satellite resources we use. Um, so I can send you that information. That'll be ready in, in January of 2022. And then I get to start writing again. Gosh, well, Luke, this is awesome, man. We're going to have to have you back on and dive into one of these adventures more or, or, or dive into risk assessment. More, yeah. Honestly. Yeah. We never even got into risk. I know. I mean, I, you start telling stories, man. It's like, it's all over. This is awesome. Well, I tell you what, let's, let's plan to have you back on sometime soon in a focus on risk assessment. Cause I think that'd just be such a cool topic to really dive into. But no, uh, I sure, I, I appreciate it being conversational and I, and I love your enthusiasm for Alaska and for Molly. Yeah. Thanks again, Luke. We'll, we'll talk soon. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.